Welcome to the Willie Jackson Experiment. I'm your host, the one, the only, Willie Jackson. Oh, awesome. Cool. So, um, have a great episode for you guys. Um, one of my buddies, this guy Rob Hawk, uh, from uh, over there in Perth, Australia, said, you know what? He goes, I want you to do an episode on the history of blues. And so I don't know if Rob knows this about me, but um, I'm not, you know, really, you know, I love blues. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love the blues. I just always have to think of some way it fits into metal. So I kind of did like a history of blues and a history of metal kind of fusion. And uh, you could actually probably call this the Alex Skolnick show because I'm a real huge fan of Alex Skolnick. And I really love how Alex uh, incorporates his uh, leads in, you know, in kind of a blues manner. And then I got a song in here that's called The Florida Man, uh, the Alex Skolnick Trio. And uh, so Rob, uh, over there, appreciate you giving me this suggestion. And so I hope you guys enjoy this show. It's just going to be pretty much a whole bunch of music. Not a whole lot of talking, but it's it's pretty cool. I think you guys enjoy it. So enjoy the show. I promise you, win or lose, I'm going to go down fighting. I'm going to go down fighting for rock. Back in black, I hit the sack. I've been too long. Glad to be. Yes, I'm let loose from the noose. That's kept me hanging about and kept looking to the sky. Because it's getting me high. Forget uh-huh. first. Because I'll never die. I got nine lives. Kiss eyes, mm-hmm. everyone, uh-huh. and running wild, cause I'm back. And yes, I'm back. Well, I'm back. And yes, I'm back. Well, I'm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm back in black. Yes, I'm back in black. <clears throat>
something's going wrong in the state of sunshine. A man drank on his booze, stepped out for more. He took his pet alligator to the liquor store. Every other day, I'm reading about the Florida man. Take a chance They found an active meth lab Stuffed down his pants Every other day I'm reading about the Florida man He defies evolution Tries the best he can He's walking down the road Feeling no shame He's wearing no clothes Just a skin on his frame by the cops on the beat They put him in the car He tried to eat the sea Every other day I'm reading about the floor
Okay, I have a question for you. Listen to these clips from three different songs and try to guess what they all have in common. Could you figure it out? Whether directly or indirectly, all of these songs were inspired in some way by blues music. But how are all these songs that sound so different influenced by the same music? And what makes blues music the blues? Because if you don't like the blues, you don't like your mama. Because this is the root of music, man. It's like cooking potatoes. You may fry them, you may bake them, you may cut them up, you may smash them, but they're still potatoes. Gritty guitar solos, wailing harmonicas, and soulful lyrics about life's hardships are all part of what makes people love the blues. But how did this music start, and why is it so important to American music? The answer to this question can be found deep in the Mississippi Delta of the American South, where the blues was born sometime in the late 1800s. Even after slavery officially ended, poverty and unjust laws kept people from full freedom. Many former slaves stayed in the South and continued to work in difficult conditions. People sang spirituals at church, and work songs in the field to help deal with the daily struggles. Over time, this music developed into what people now call the blues. Most blues musicians were farm workers by day and would play at blues bars called juke joints by night. The earliest form of the blues was often referred to as country blues or delta blues, and this style usually had a solo singer who would also either play the harmonica or bottleneck slide guitar. Bottleneck slide guitar is when a musician presses a hard object across multiple strings on a guitar and slides it down the fingerboard. Sometimes they would use a steel bar, a knife, or a bottleneck, and this would create a smooth wailing type of sound. The Delta Blues also emphasized rhythm, fingerstyle guitar, and reflective lyrics about the hard lives of African-American farmers in the South. As blues music grew in popularity, some musicians like Charlie Patton, Eddie James Sunhouse Jr., and Robert Johnson became famous and toured around the Delta region. Later, blues musicians started performing in Memphis, Tennessee to establish their careers. This included famous bluesmen like B.B. King and John Lee Hooker. During what's known as the Great Migration from 1910 to 1970, millions of African Americans tried to escape the racism and Jim Crow laws of the South by moving to northern cities. Many moved to the city of Chicago in particular. Blues musicians like Howlin' Wolf, Willie Dixon, and Muddy Waters made this journey and brought the blues with them. They also developed the new Chicago blues sound. Chicago blues was basically the same style of blues played in the Delta, except played more energetically with an electric guitar, sometimes a bass guitar, piano, and drums. Listen to this clip from Robert Johnson's Delta Blues style song, I Believe I'll Dust My Broom, recorded in 1936. Now listen to a 1966 version of the same song in a more Chicago style by Howlin' Wolf. Now this Chicago style would later have an influence on rock and roll, but we'll talk more about that later. What gives you the blues in RA when they run out of peanut butter jelly? <laughs> oh wow, you know me really well now. How much experience do you have playing the blues? That is a very interesting question because it's also asking me how much experience do I have playing gospel, rock and roll, mm. R&B, soul. It's all music. intertwined. Yeah. I actually did an episode on my channel on the blues 
uh, a year ago. And since then, I've learned a lot about blues. Okay. About the blues as a genre and also the form. How would you say blues music and your realm of classical music are related? The way that melody is formed over chords, how it's elaborating upon different chords, a different chord progression, I think that's where the similarity is. Right, right. So what is it that makes blues music sound bluesy? Well, let's take a look at the scale that's most commonly found in blues songs, which is a six-note scale based off of a five-note scale. That five-note scale either being the major pentatonic scale or the minor one. And as you can hear, these five-note scales are quite different than the seven-note scales that you most commonly hear in Western music. Now, going back to the major pentatonic scale, to that, we're going to add a flat three from the root note. So that'll sound like this. To the minor one, we're going to add the flat five from the root note, and that'll sound like this. Another important part of the blues is the form, and most blues will follow a 12-bar blues chord progression, which is based around three different chords. Those chords in C major will be C, the one chord, F, the four chord, and G, the five chord. And these chords will be repeated in a specific order, most commonly with a flat seven as well. So a C7, F7, and G7. And that'll sound like this. C7 for four measures. Three, four, F7 for two. C7 for two. G7 for one. F7 for one. And back to C7 for two. Of course, improvisation is a huge part of the blues and no tune is complete without it, so I'm going to give it a shot. Is there something that is similar to what a blue note is in terms of pitches in the context of just drums? Absolutely. With pitch, is like if you're playing in between a C and a C sharp, that there's a note in between the C mm -hmm. and the C sharp. A blue note in rhythm would be like if it's directly on the beat or there's things that, there's notes in between the quantized beats that you could still ah ride with. Another important element of blues is its AAB lyrical structure. Let's go back to the Robert Johnson track, I Believe I'll Dust My Broom. I'm gonna get up in the morning, I believe I'll dust my broom. Now, do you know what lyrics come next? I'm gonna get up in the morning, I believe I'll dust my broom. It's the first line repeated. This AAB lyrical structure is very common in the blues. It's inspired by the call and response style of singing in African-American spirituals and work songs. In the blues, the first line is often repeated and the third line answers. Up in the black man you've been loving. Up in the black man you've been loving. 
can't get my room. Of course, what the lyrics are about is also important. Now, True Blue, the, the lyrics are absolutely true, saying about life experience. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, but they didn't lie. As blues musicians moved from the South and took their music to different parts of the U.S., the blues mixed with other musical styles from those regions and helped inspire many new genres. The 12-bar blues chord progression became one of the most popular forms for early jazz improvisation. Jazz performers like Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and Miles Davis were all influenced by the blues, often using a 12-bar structure for their songs. The 12-bar structure was also a major influence on rock and roll. Some even call rock and roll blues with a backbeat. And Elvis Presley probably had this in mind when he recorded his version of a blues song by Big Mama Thornton called Hound Dog. Blues also inspired other rock and pop artists, such as All of these songs use some form of the 12-bar structure or the blues scale. The pentatonic and blues scales are even common throughout heavy metal music. Country music too. In fact, country is thought to be the result of blues music mixing with folk music brought by European immigrants to the U.S. Because of this, many country songs are written with the blues scale or following the 12-bar blues progression. Blues, here we go. Blues. I was thinking we don't have to do classic blues. We'll just have our own twist to it. That's what it is. We just gotta let creation happen. I mean, we always do. So our song contains the 12-bar blues chord progression as well as the blues scale. And some other elements of the blues were included but with our own twist. For example, the wailing type of sound of the bottleneck slide guitar got translated into this type of synth sound. Which I think has this squiggle and has that wailing quality. And obviously the other parts are quite not traditional. But we try to go with sounds that have this laid-back, yet yearning type of quality. Let us know what you think of our blues-inspired song, and make sure you don't forget to subscribe. Three is the one. Three is the one, yep. This video is sponsored by Skillshare. Go to skl.sh polyphonic9 to get two months of Skillshare for free. 
There are a few genres quite like metal. It's a style of music that's both beloved and hated, celebrated and criticized. Since its birth, it spawned dozens of subgenres and movements each more extreme than the last. And nowadays metal is ubiquitous, it's a staple in many people's lives. But where did it all begin? It's a difficult question. No music exists in a vacuum. Instead, music growth is a slow-moving beast, building on years and decades of development. But was there a flashpoint? Is there a single artist, a single song you can look at as the branching point where rock split off and became something new, something wholly different, and something that would reach its tendrils into the modern world and become a genre unto itself? Let's take a closer look. On the broadest level, tracking change in genre is like tracking change in color. What is the exact point that red becomes orange? This is a topic that's highly debated in music communities, and to get to that transition point, we need to understand the early history of the genre. While many trace the origins of metal to the 1960s rock movement, the groundwork for it was laid a generation earlier. Like so much music, metal can trace its earliest roots to the blues. In the early 1950s Memphis blues scene, musicians began to play with heavier sound in their music. Artists like Joe Hill Lewis and Pat Hare played with heavier and heavier distortion, creating an angry sound out of their guitars. Check out James Cotton's Cotton Crop Blues for an idea of this sound. Pat Hare even had a song called I'm Gonna Murder My Baby, foreshadowing the morbid subject matters that would become a staple of metal music. Yes, I'm gonna murder my baby. Don't do nothing but cheat and lie. This distortion then became essential to the surf rock movement coming out of America in the early 1960s. While surf rock may seem like an unlikely place for metal origins, it provided more use of distortion and notably riffs that used fast-picked guitar. Just check out Dick Dale's timeless Miserloo, which you'll probably recognize if you're a fan of Quentin Tarantino or the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> While these influences may have laid the early groundwork, metal really started to come about in the late 60s with some of the most famous rock bands of all time. These bands usually came out of England and were heavily influenced by the grit of American blues. A group like The Who played with faster tempos and heavier distortion. You can hear this in 1966's My Generation. Just because we get around. The Who were all about pushing their music to louder, heavier places, and a year after my generation, they released I Can See For Miles. One reviewer famously called I Can See For Miles the heaviest song he had ever heard. Legend has it the Beatles' Paul McCartney read that review and took it as a challenge. And so the next year, the Beatles released Helter Skelter, a positively thunderous song. 
That song has a pummeling bassline, thick distortion, and harsh, shouted vocals. It's no surprise that a lot of people point to it as an early influencer of metal music. At the same time, Eric Clapton's trio Cream were trying their hand at heavier music. Listen to a song like Tales of Brave Ulysses for some wild, loud, psychedelic guitar soloing. But with all due respect to the Beatles, Cream, and The Who, none really hold the title of the heaviest song of the era. In 1967, the psychedelic blues band Blue Cheer recorded a cover of the Eddie Cochran tune Summertime Blues. That song has been covered a number of times, and The Who would even go on to cover it themselves. But none of these covers were anything like Blue Cheers. Sometimes I wonder what I'm gonna do. No, there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. Their take on that song was deep, dark, and loud. To this day, many people consider Summertime Blues the first real heavy metal song. I think one of the standout traits of Summertime Blues is how deep it is, sitting far lower in the audio spectrum than many of its peers. This is something that became a key part of metal, as evidenced by the genre's affinity for drop-tuned guitars and five- or six-string basses. Blue Cheer released that song in 1968, which became a really important year for metal music. Alongside Summertime Blues, that year saw the release of two more songs often called the first metal song. Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild came out in 1968, and it was a big hit following Summertime Blues onto the charts. That song uses gruff vocals, distorted guitar, and taps into motorcycle culture, an aesthetic that metal would draw from frequently over the next few decades. And perhaps most importantly, Born to be Wild featured the line, Heavy Metal Thunder. Heavy metal thunder. While Steppenwolf weren't using the phrase to describe music, it stuck, and people soon started applying it to the up-and-coming genre. And that genre found some more staples on June 14, 1968, when Iron Butterfly released the 17-minute epic Inagata De Vida. That song was a psychedelic journey driven by heavy bass and thick guitar. Doug Engel's vocals on that song are absolutely iconic, giving an idea of what's to come in metal music. And the lyrics hint at walking fantastical lands, made more fantastical by the garbling of the intended title, In the Garden of Eden. What might be more important than the songs released in 1968 is the new bands that were created. Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. Though you don't often hear Zeppelin described as heavy metal today, they were one of the groups that brought the term into the public eye. Their debut album draws from electric blues, but cranks up the volume and tempo. A song like Communication Breakdown is essential to the development of metal as a genre. Throughout their career, Zeppelin would also put together elaborate stage shows and sing about fantasy. But the fantasy Zeppelin sang about was often bright and triumphant. It was Black Sabbath who tapped into the darker side of fantastical imagery. Building on a trend set by groups like Coven and Black Widow, Black Sabbath started to use images of Satanism and witchcraft in their music. And then in 1970, Black Sabbath released their debut album. And while people may be able to point to earlier dates, there's no later date that you could reasonably argue for the birth of heavy metal. When Sabbath's self-titled debut hit the scene, it showed the world what metal was. Unlike some other artists who went heavy for individual songs, this was an entire album of metal, front to back. 
It featured Tony Iommi's thick tritone chords, made even darker by his false plastic fingertips that let him bend the strings like no other. Below this, Geezer Butler doubled Iommi's guitar riffs, giving them a darker, heavier sound. Listening to something like Wicked World, it's easy to hear that this is undoubtedly metal. <laughs> More than just birthing metal, this album also birthed one of metal's earliest subgenres, doom metal. Over the next few albums, Sabbath codified the genre of metal. 1970s Paranoid was loaded front to back with classic metal songs like War Pigs, Iron Man, Paranoid, and Fairies Wear Boots. Master of Reality laid the groundwork for stoner metal with Sweet Leaf. Right, Alongside Sabbath and Zeppelin, there was one more group instrumental to the birth of metal in the late 60s and early 70s. Deep Purple. Their 1970 album, In Rock, featured Ian Gillian's screeching vocals, which would go on to influence other giants like Iron Maiden in the second wave of heavy metal. And throughout the rest of the 70s, groups like Judas Priest and Motorhead began to punch their way into the mainstream, helping tread new ground for metal and defining the genre. Thanks to these acts and many more, metal found its footing in the 1970s and exploded into popularity, growing into the many-headed giant you know and love or hate.